Rain Phoenix, and you're listening and watching Launch Life Podcast, a space for fame creatives to launch the next wave of music rebels. It's also an intentional space to highlight and empower all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Today's special guest is Dan Lanois, music producer, songwriter, pedal steel player, guitar player, uh, 11-time Grammy Award winning producer incredible human being such a give back heart um and i've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times and getting to tour his home studio and today we're all going to get a look into his home studio and i'm going to ask him some questions burning questions i've had for i don't know since the 80s being a child of the 80s he's definitely someone who made records that uh were formative to me and actually, especially formative to my brother, River, who was one of the biggest musical influences on me. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome Dan Lanois to the show. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Um, so nice to see you. And thank you so much for doing this. Um, You're very welcome, Rain. Yeah, I'm really, uh, I was just reminiscing, thinking about how I came to know Dan Lanois. And I realized it was through my brother, River who I don't know if you ever got to meet, but his, um, one of his favorite producers was you. So the, so the records that he listened to when I was just like 12, 13, 14, and being influenced by him were um, the U2 records you produced, as well as Peter Gabriel's So. I remember he had that on repeat, and I knew every song by heart as a, as a young person. So I hope you'll bear with me. I want to ask a couple questions about your early days before we launch into... Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, uh, you lead the way there, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I'm just curious how music found you as a boy. Like, what first brought you to music or how did it come and search you out? Hmm. Uh, in the French Canadian community as a child, um, cause we lived in Quebec. Um, uh, my grandfather was a, a violinist. We, he was a violoneux, which is a, a nickname for a fiddler. Um, so he knew a lot of the old jigs and my dad also played a little bit, but the gatherings, um, were significant because uh, we didn't come from a lot of cash. So folks would just gather out of other folks' houses and sing songs and the violins would come out and uh, somebody would be at the piano and, you know, the very old-fashioned, um, almost hillbilly a little bit, you know. <laughs> um, and so I got to hear those old melodies and they were uh, traditional uh, melodies from... A lot of them French Canadian, some Irish things that go. Played in double stop, and uh, of course that gets into a little a little kid's head. So so that was the beginning there, being exposed to music, and then after that, my mom moved the family to a place called Hamilton, which is. On the Canadian side, not far from Buffalo, it's a steel town, and that's where I grew up as a teenager. And I started taking music lessons there because I, I wanted to play, I wanted to play the clarinet. <laughs> I mean, I could elaborate on that if you want. You know? Yes, I'd love to know why you wanted to play the clarinet. What a beautiful instrument! I had seen um, a clarinet player on TV, and I thought, oh, maybe one day I could play the clarinet. And uh, I guess I was about nine or ten then. And my mom used to give me a dollar a week as an allowance, and I'd go to the cinema by myself on Saturday. It was a you know a couple of miles walk downtown, which was always lovely. And I passed by this music store, and I saw in the window something that looked like a clarinet for a dollar. I went in and I bought it. It was just a plastic penny whistle, really. <laughs> But uh, it was close enough looking to a clarinet. And so I played that for 
couple of years. And then uh, this was the time of uh, door-to-door canvassing, and someone knocked on my mom's door and said, uh, do you have any kids that want to take music lessons? <laughs> she said, well, this one over here likes music, and I passed the aptitude test, and then um, I signed signed up for music lessons, and the guy said, well, we teach accordion or slide guitar. I said, okay, I'll take slide. <laughs> and that oh, was amazing. What an interesting two things to offer door-to-door, accordion or slide guitar lessons, right? I and mean, that doesn't seem like it's not like just guitar or bass or, wow. Yeah. Well, the uh, rock and roll hadn't quite caught on that. Uh, so I think the, and there was a big Italian community, so the accordion was okay. big. So it does make sense then, okay. <laughs> wow, so that was, the, that was, as a boy, how you literally music found you. That's so interesting. Yeah. And were you an avid... Were you someone who practiced constantly and just were absorbed in it all the time? Has music always been the thing that drove you since then? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I, I just played nonstop. I played that little recorder, I'm sure. I made everybody crazy. Um, and then I really loved the slide guitar as well. I, I'd walk to my lesson back downtown once a week, this time to the lesson rather than the cinema. And uh, I loved my lesson. Uh, I had a one-on... A one-on-one uh, lesson with a teacher and I like to tell the story because um, it's the kind of thing that wouldn't happen in modern times he used to hypnotize me he'd put a wow. little um, like the center of a 45 on the music stand so you keep looking at that and he'd say you're getting sleepy and you're going to get better and better and sure enough I got better and better <laughs> what he was into hypnotism. I loved. I loved it. I was looking. I looked forward to getting hypnotized, and sure enough, I got better and better. Wow, that's so interesting. I've never heard of a, a hypnotizing music teacher, but uh, it obviously worked for you quite well. And then I, my my next curiosity, and thank you so much for humoring me, is um, how you came to meet Brian Eno and then collaborate with him, like as you know. Um, Quebec. Yes, well, uh, uh, you know, I got into uh, recording very early on. Um, I acquired a little tape recorder. It was had an onboard microphone and on, onboard speakers, and I was started fiddling with that for a good few years. I guess when I was about uh, twelve or thirteen, I, I got that little recorder, and so I started recording my friends, and um, I just kept building that into a recording studio eventually got really good at it and uh, and uh, you know to move the clock forward I, I had a, a very active nice studio in this town Hamilton I told you about and I used to record uh, uh, a lot of folks from Toronto a lot of smart artists that were uh, came from the the art world and I recorded these two women called the time twins and they made very inventive music, and uh, I really poured my, my heart into their work, and we made some, some inventive recordings. They went to New York, met Eno, played him the tapes. He said, wow, these sound very inventive. Where did you make these? And they said, there's a guy in Hamilton. And he called me up and asked if he could come in and record. He was coming to Toronto anyhow because he had a girlfriend in Toronto at the time. So it was just an off-chance thing, you know, and we hit it off and became great friends. He lived in my house. We made ambient records for a good few years together. Did you have anything to do with the Brian Eno-Harold Budd collaboration? Like, were you part of that recording? There was one that I just played constantly called, I think, First Light. Um, um, I made two records with Brian for Harold, uh, Plateau of Mirror and The Pearl, and um, in, fa- in fact, Plateau of Mirror was the uh, the first one that I did, first recording I worked on with Brian. Um, he had he came in with already recorded piano that he had done with uh, with Harold in New York, I believe, and then we proceeded to uh, manipulate the sounds and add to uh, add to the piano recordings, and so that was the beginning of the the ambient series. So, and that's where you started with Eno, and then that parlayed into U2, because I know you collaborated on many U2 records with them. Yeah, we we made a good, uh, I want to say five albums, uh, 
under the ambient banner. So we were on a pretty good roll and we have a really nice time and I, I stopped doing everything else. I just devoted myself totally to making this body of work with Brian. Um, then there was an invitation. All kind of phone calls would come in and we were pretty starstruck. You know, David Bowie would be on the phone and somebody else. And, and then he said, uh, uh, this band U2 wanted to invite him to produce. And he said to them, I'm not producing anymore. I said, Brian, because um, I'd, I'd listened to what they had sent, I said, I think the kid's got something, Brian. He, he thinks he's got some really nice high notes. But why don't you make an introduction and I'll produce them? <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> and so that was the, the plan. And uh, we went to Dublin together. And, um, Bono's very con- convincing, so uh, Brian decided he would do it with me. And how was that working with, like... Was you know I think it depends on the artist or the producer, but you were really collaborating with Brian. I know you said you guys were good friends, so and that was really easy for you. There it wasn't um, to share that you know like because I know everybody has different ideas, right? But you were able to bring your ideas together, or you had a lot of similarities, or you enjoyed the differences together. Uh, well, that's so, interesting. You talk about differences because. Uh... Uh, I mean, we have different skills. Um, I was a very accomplished musician by the time we went to Ireland and uh, had not spent my time in art school like Brian had. So he was much more advanced philosophically and in, in ways of the art world. But I knew how to play instruments and I had an understanding of the, the makeup of harmonies because I recorded a lot of gospel records when I was a kid. So I really knew uh, about fundamentals and complementary harmonies, and that. so I was able to make a contribution that way. And I, I believe the guys from YouTube were quite impressed with my knowledge because uh, I, I wasn't just good at running the equipment, you know, that I, that I had uh, had a musical knowledge. But getting back to differences of opinion, um, there was a moment in the studio where somebody asked. One of the band members asked, Brian, what do you think? He said what he thought. And then he said, Dan, what do you think? And I said the opposite. At the end of the day, Eno took me aside. He said, don't ever do that again. Whatever I say, you agree with. And whatever you say, I agree with. That's progress. Differences of opinion are terrible. We're a team. (laughs) And I never forgot that. I said, that is the end of debate and democracy for me. (laughs) Wow. And did you, was that something that you adopted uh, through future collaborations or did you never collaborate again? (laughs) No, we uh, we kept going from there. And I just realized that, uh, um, you know, it's very important to Brian to get on with things rather than consider too many options. Because uh, if you get on with something, even if you're wrong, Better to find out you're wrong soon and then get on with the right thing. So I, I really appreciate that he's very proactive. My older brother, River, he was probably the most influential. We played music since he was five and I was three together. And whatever he brought me musically was kind of what formed who I am, um, mm-hmm. too. So, yeah, I remember The Unforgettable Fire and Joshua Tree and where I was and how old I was, you know, it's very, so it's interesting now so many years later to have the opportunity to speak to you. I just thank you so much for sharing a little bit about that. Cause it's definitely. Of course, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, outside of that, uh, just, yeah, Peter Gabriel. So I think came after that. And um, that was something you did with Brian as well, or was that on your, no, I, I worked with Peter uh, uh, without Brian. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That record is phenomenal. Uh, really. Uh, well, uh, I'll tell Peter you said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. He's, he's, he's definitely a seminal artist, too. Yeah. So interesting, depending on when you were raised or born, you know, the yeah. 80s for me. And um, a, a, very, a very kind man, uh, generous and very smart. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, uh, outside of that, um, I know more recently 
you know, you've been, you've made a lot of solo records, first of all, which were phenomenal. And you've been producing, I don't know that you really produce so much anymore um, outside of things that you're very close to you Mm -hmm. or that you want to work on. Well, I'm not doing it the way I was doing it back then because uh, um, as I look back through the chapters of my life, I, I realized that I could never be that focused and committed anymore, not in that way, um, because I, I gave up everything to to make the best work with these folks. You know, I, I lived uh, in Peter Gabriel's um, upstairs. He had a farmhouse, and I just lived upstairs for a year, never went out, and all I did was work on this record. Could I do that now? Probably not, because life is busier and there's more going on. Um, so it belonged to that time. Uh, I'm still as devoted as ever in a different way. Um, I'm making music with uh, some folks I met here uh, in Los Angeles and Shreveport, Louisiana. We're called Heavy Sun. You've heard us here at the house. Yeah. And um, um, great singers, and I'm very excited about this body of work. So I'm sure I'll look look back at this as a chapter one day. <laughs> Yeah, working there at your house with them um, on this project. I mean, obviously, right now we're all going through something that unprecedented <laughs> in yeah. that no one is leaving their home and mm-hmm. they're not hold- they're with you through this quarantine, and so therefore you're maybe not working right now. Um, yeah, the we got pretty much all the work done prior to the problem, and so everybody's at home, but uh, we're reconfiguring the studio. Um, in such a way that, because I have a whole other studio area downstairs, I don't know if you saw that, but so I'm thinking of having them back to touch up the vocals, and they could be down there, and I can be up here. The, we've done it that way in the past, you know, with cameras, and and you know, so it's still possible to get work done that way. So they'll be back. Yeah, and actually, I was once I did have the incredible opportunity to go downstairs, and your art, and I think it's like your archive. There's like tape ton of different tapes from like all the amazing records you made and I remember being like whoa it felt like I was in the most incredible room to see just the names of the records one of which was Wrecking Ball which was one of my favorite records with Emily Lou Harris and I wondered just uh, quickly if we could touch upon a little bit about that record and most specifically that you even met her and and made that record Uh, she called me out of the blue and uh... I always liked her voice, and we agreed to have a meeting. So I went to see her at her place in Nashville. And I was very uh, touched by the the American feeling in her house. Um, her dad had been a, a pilot in World War II, a uh, fighter pilot. And uh, so there was a lot of memorabilia uh, surrounding that, plus pictures of Johnny Cash and... Carter family and George Jones and and I thought this is the this is the part of America that I'd like to know more about and so it caused me to be a little patriotic you know <laughs> as a Canadian <laughs> and I thought well this woman has her values intact a great human being and I think I, I'd like to make a record with her so it was as simple as that in regards to the vision um, that wasn't so hard, you know. Uh, uh, Emmy brought a good few songs to the table that she had handpicked that were good songs, and then um, off we went. But we found the sound very early on that was a big part of the, uh, the spine of that record sonically. Combination of this upright piano that we rented. Um, I think it, I don't know what kind it was. Let's say it was an, upri- an old upright Steinway, kind of a saloon kind of piano. And I brought my dulcimers um, that are multiple string instruments. I had a little mando guitar that I was uh, that I loved at the time. And again, that's a multiple string instrument. So we found this chiming sound um, with the uh, the dulcimer, the piano, and the mando guitar became the chime of that record. And then Emmy's got a little something in her voice that reminds me of what I heard from the early days, uh, pop music coming out of Hollywood, uh, the Crystals, 
and then he kissed me. That kind of, that, walked up to me in the And I thought, oh, when I heard that sound in the headphones, I ran into the control room and I spoke with Malcolm, who, Malcolm Byrne, who was engineering. I said, don't touch anything. That's the sound of this record. And I decided to pursue the uh, the very thing that had come our way. <laughs> wow. Um, but uh, that aside, Emmy is such a great singer that we were able to get live takes, live vocal takes. And if I felt that we'd gotten a, a good take um, musically and a good vocal, I'd ask Emmy to sing two more right away. Um so that I, if there were any phrases that she was uncomfortable with uh, on the initial pass, then we had two backups to go to. That's better than revisiting two or three weeks later. You never get the vibe back. Plus, maybe I can explain something technical. Um, we recorded everything live as a little group together, so sometimes uh, uh, Lucinda Williams would be just to my left, Emmy over here, me over there, and then some of the other musicians, a, a real, a more, more like a kitchen uh, gathering of singing. And that made for really nice communication, um, but also made for quite a bit of bleed into her vocal. So to do those extra vocals that I just told you about, we would pipe the music back through studio speakers, mimicking the presence of the instruments, so we got the same leakage in the overdub vocals. Wow. Very cool. So just a little, a little yeah, a little technological <laughs> trick there for anyone who's interested. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing about Wrecking yeah. Ball. Definitely seminal. Yeah. So back to Heavy Sun, which is now and happening yeah. now. Um, I I know that you shared that you wanted to um, show a little bit about something with your studio. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I want you to do it. To show me what you wanted to show. Okay. So, uh, well, before we completely move off of Amy Lou, let me add one thing. Yes. Uh, Larry, uh, Larry Mullen, the drummer from U2, loves country music. And uh, when I was putting the band together, I thought maybe this is a chance to do a country thing with Larry. So I called him up and I said, "Would you would you come to Nashville?" And he didn't know all that much about Amy Lou, but. He trusted that I did. <laughs> and um, because everything that Larry plays sounds heavy, even the simplest thing. You know, he's just got that rolling heaviness in his sound. And that's also a very big part of the, uh, the thundering uh, um, subsonics of that record. So thank you, Larry Mullen. <laughs> yes, thank you, Larry Mullen. And thank you for, like, what's interesting about you, thank you for sharing that because... It's like, I think that's always such a powerful part of a, a good producer is knowing who's the right player and who to bring into the collaboration or into the record because... Um, it's part of my job to recognize the potential in someone. Uh, so I might meet a musician that's got something to offer. Maybe other people aren't noticing it so much, but I do. And I like to, if that person's hungry... That goes a long way for me. So I've invited a lot of hungry, hidden talent to be involved with me. I know. You're, that, <laughs> that makes my heart sing because that, as you know, is very much what Launch Left is about, is artists that, that use their platform and their talent to spotlight and help other artists come up and, mm -hmm. and kindness on top of kindness in the yeah. community, collaboration over competition. These are the, these are the virtues that Launch Left hopes to espouse as a, um, you know, not just a podcast, but a kind of ecosystem of artists helping artists. And so you are one of those artists that to me has always uh, been, had that kind of heart and you have so many causes close to your heart. You're somebody who cares deeply, you know? Um, so I just am so grateful to have the opportunity to sit down with you via Zoom, not in all person, right. but <laughs> while we're on house arrest. Um, yeah. All, all right. right. What, why don't we then segue to uh, some of this current work? Speaking yeah. of um, uh, hungry hidden talent, I hope Johnny <laughs> Shepard doesn't mind me calling him that. <laughs> I met Johnny Shepard through Brian Blade and his father. Um, uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana, at the Zion Baptist Church, where Brian's dad is a pastor. And um, I played guitar in that band, and Johnny was the 
choir leader, organist, and um, a vocal arranger. Um, and when his term came to an end um, with that church, I invited him to come to L.A. to work with us. So uh, you'll hear he sings the lead on this. He's got a fantastic voice. And then we have t- um, three other singers. We have Rocco DeLuca, who's got the most beautiful high register. Um, Jim Wilson, who has a, uh, more comes more from the rock world, but has a beautiful uh, tenor voice, can also go very high. And then me, who um, I usually come a little bit under the, under Jim, you know. <laughs> Johnny can hit everything. <laughs> <laughs> He's so great. So let me play you this little track here. It's very short, so I'll let it play through because we're then going to send you the high-fidelity version, so it will be... Uh, high five for the folks who listen to the podcast after. So, what do I do here? When just press this. Oh yeah, I'm going to change the mic. Put it just a bit like that. And for all you watchers and listeners, I had the extreme pleasure of actually witnessing this uh, live. And this is and and like Dan said, he's going to do a, an audio feed, so you'll at least be able to hear this in all its its glory. Um, yeah. But this was an amazing experience to see you all perform and record it live at your home. Um, yeah, man. So um, Hope everyone so, gets the opportunity to see that footage one day. So the uh, this has is a quite a rhythmic track. Um, what else can I say about it? Uh, oh yeah, and the, the project is called Heavy Sun. So Daniel Lanwan, Heavy Sun. So here we go.
thank you. You're a pretty oh good God. dancer there, right? I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't help it. I was like, you know what? The spirit's moving me. I'm getting up. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, so that's, that's called Say You Will. It's, it's based on uh, a church classic that um, Johnny had knowledge of, and we adapted it to this. And then uh, we cut it to fixed time. Uh, not much of anything, just this little beatbox. And then in the absence of the guys, I overdubbed with Wayne. I overdubbed all the drums. And so if, you know, if you're interested, I can walk you through some of the uh, the components, you know. If you're interested in sharing, I'm always interested in, in hearing. Okay. Well, let, let me just start here with, uh, um, is this the right song here, Wayne? Yeah. Yeah. It started with uh, this little hi-hat processing. It's not much of anything, but we managed to turn that into something. And then the main drum kit. Who played drums on this? You did? Uh, no, Kyle Crane, a, a great a drummer in L.A. He's a, quite a specialist on playing the beatboxes. Okay. So I got this this drum kit here. See, he's got this little brush action going. Lovely kick drum part. And then he did a Rolling Toms version, which goes like this. And when I blend the two together, you get this effect. And Johnny's organ. Then we have a piano. bit Thelonious Monk-like. Johnny's vocal, of course. Thank you for uh, separating them so we could kind of hear how you, that building of it. So, yeah. so great. So are you making a record together right now? That's what you were talking about, right? Are you done or nearly done? We're nearly done. Uh, Wayne and I are here just um, going through with the process that I always go through. If we're lucky enough to have bumped into some magic, then we apply TLC and attention to all the details. Uh, we wouldn't go ahead without the magic, but we've got it here on this record a good few times, so that really keeps me keeps the fire burning in my heart, you know, just to to go the distance and make it a masterpiece. My production skills are being poured into this work right now, and we like playing live, and hopefully we're going to all get back to singing together pretty soon because, as you know, singing with people is very... Uh, it might be the oldest instrument, the oldest instrument of congregation, that and beating on a drum. Drum, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I know. Uh, fire, fireside songs, right? Um, mm. Which, interestingly, I've always felt like the modern congregation, you know, as as church attendance goes falls into um, demise a bit, then we find other ways to raise the spirit. Um, and I think the uh, for anyone who's got a, a bit of a 
um, a spirited heart, it's not hard to um, to recognize that modern times have have a lot to offer that way. You know, there's plenty of ways of getting together. Yeah, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. It's uh, it's more of a melodic thing. That um, what do I do, Wayne? Project. Okay. Um, Wayne Lorenz is here with me, and he's my co-producer. He doesn't like me to call him that because he doesn't want any doesn't want any credit for anything. But uh, how rare is that? <laughs> but uh, a man that I admire and trust. We've been t- working together for a long time now. He's setting up the uh, the console. He's been working on this rig. He's been working on this rig for a couple of days. Just trying to. Oh, I should say something about this microphone was sent to me by Mark Brenner from Sure. He's a good friend who is one of the bosses at Sure, and it plugs into the. Um, the iPhone or the uh, laptop, right, Wayne? And it's a much uh, improved sound over the onboard speaker. So for anyone who uh, is interested. I would love to, to talk to him, if you don't mind sharing, because that's no, no. What I'm doing from home, is, and I would love to have a better quality to my voice um, while doing podcasting. So yes, I think... We could put you in touch. Uh, we'll, we'll give you the model number. It's brand new. The uh, they got some very smart cookies in the design department there at Sure, just outside Chicago. And uh, we're we're big fans, and so uh, Mark always sends me the latest to, to try out. So he sent me this and a couple of lav mics, which also, uh, that might be good for you for your dancing. Just strap one on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is honestly the first time I've ever danced on a podcast, so it's for, for helping um, me move. So this is uh, the other end of the spectrum uh, from the rhythmic song. It's a song called uh, um, Way Down, and it was started by uh, Rocco DeLuca. All these songs were written by Rocco DeLuca, Johnny Shepard, and myself. And so this one was started by Rocco. Let's see if it comes through here. Excuse me. Oh, let me just move the mic there rain so you can hear it properly.
song so beautiful wow <laughs> <laughs> Who, which so, harmony are you there are so many beautiful vocals mm-hmm. the high one way down i'm yeah. singing a uh, support lead uh, uh yeah yeah on the other side yeah. way down way down way down the city on the other side, way down, way down. That's my register. <laughs> so, so beautiful. I wanted to uh, provide a little recording trick here for acoustic guitar. This is something that, I, if you're cool with that, Raina, um, <laughs> this is something I've been doing since, um, oh, I guess it was Edge from U2 introduced me to this acoustic guitar um, um, miking idea. You don't use a microphone at all. You use a pickup. At the time, it was a Washburn acoustic with a Lawrence clip-on magnetic pickup. And it turned out to be a real friend for me in the studio. And then I took that idea to uh, when we made Bob Dylan's Old Mercy record. I didn't want Bob's vocal to um, be spilling into the guitar because I thought if he changed some of the lyrics, then I would want to punch him in and that, that would screw up the... Uh, the punch in so we use this magnetic pickup and a little amp um, hidden around the corner uh, under cushions and so that's the acoustic guitar sounds on Old Mercy are in fact electric acoustics and I've stayed with that ever since so I'll let you hear the uh, this happens to be a little guild acoustic I'll show you in a second with that pickup on it through a, a little fender amp eh? Wait, a little fender tweed excuse me So I redid these acoustics after the band left just to improve the quality. And then I doubled it. And then we had the luxury of this little beatbox to keep time. And Johnny's organ, of course. There's no bass on here. The, the the organ is playing the bass, so you have this lovely advantage of the of the bass being really in tune with the top of the organ, of course, because it's all coming from one instrument. So it's always been a, one of my favorite sounds, the Hammond organ. Johnny, of course. Way down, way down, oh, oh, oh. on the other side. Way down, way down, oh, oh, city. 
That's me coming in under. Rocco. We'll hear Rocco come in in a second. Way down, way down, a city on the other side. The star. Rocco's got that most beautiful timbre in the top end that I've never heard from anyone else. And you'll hear Jim coming in now. And then Rocco. dissect it a little bit <laughs> so th- there's not much in the track as i look at it now you know the as much as we process everything and often come up with some very inventive sounds this is a more straight up kind of recording we put the time into the singing but i can't say enough about the organ you know as as a for anyone who likes the organ it's, it's a great instrument to go to for bottom end and and perfect pitch you know? <laughs> um, wow just stunning uh, Rain can I show you my little drum rig here because um, yes. uh, we record the drums right here you know uh, I wear headphones Wayne wears headphones and the drummer and that's kind of it in regards to drum overdubs it's, it's just a, an old drum kit I bought from Pro Drums on, uh, on Vine you can see them there so I'll walk over So this is it. Um, the snare is a uh, an original Black Beauty from the 30s, I think. This is a a large one, a very beautiful sound. But these Ducos, I got them for 1,200 bucks from Pro Drum. They're from the 50s, and. Um, so we record right here, just three microphones, uh, uh, again, sure mics for the tops. And what do we got on the bass drum? Uh, an AKG, a D12, is it? Yeah, AKG D12. Um, so that's just a three mic recording. Um, and we just move them around accordingly. You know, if, if Kyle's playing a, a floor tom feature, then we just move the, the mic a little closer to the floor tom and so on. So it takes all this multiple miking business out of the equation because I don't like to spend a lot of time on drum sounds in the studio because I, I went through enough of that in the 80s that people beating on snare drums for days on end. I don't like it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, just for any, are there any drummers out there? Um, oh, yes, uh, plenty of, of drummers that will be very happy to hear <laughs> and, that you, and grateful for that. So thank yeah. you. And we and we just I only, I, I insist on one symbol for a drummer. Uh, it start, I started this with Brian Blade as a joke. I said you're only allowed one symbol on tour, and he laughed and he brought one symbol, and that was it. I do the same thing with Kyle, and uh, that way you don't get. I not- adore you. This might be <laughs> one of my favorite things about you. I've actually was known once to grab a drummer's cymbal mid- while he was playing live on stage while I was performing. I just sigh. <laughs> It, and it's an ongoing joke with my then band that I literally just stopped it because I have a thing. I don't know what it is with the way that I hear, you know, certain brassy sounds literally make me nearly just lose my cookies. Um, and, and my kind of girl. <laughs> I'm a fan of skins over brass. You know what I mean? Like I always prefer 
minimal symbols. They have to be tasteful and they have to say what they mean to say and just not be yeah. like, I'm all symbol happy. It drives yeah. me crazy. So thank you yeah. for saying that. Well, we, we try and stay uh, far away from endorsement rock. <laughs> if I could diplomatically say it to my drummer friends. <laughs> um, I love I love that endorsement rock. Um, gosh, Dan, I can't tell you how grateful I am for this. Is like I feel high from today, just from the hearing beautiful music, uh, speaking to you. Um, you know, connecting it to my childhood. Connect when possible is how artists um, connect to something that means like, uh, you know, what do they give back to? What's, what's a passion okay. for them? Well, we, we can talk about that sort of thing a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the kind of activist that's, that's at the picket line, but I try and just, uh, make the light a little brighter where, where, uh, where I can. And so uh, to be a living example of my own philosophical stance, is not a bad start. Uh, I've helped out a few folks along the way. This is an idea that, uh, I'm going to talk about it, not to brag on it, but just suggest that it might be good for someone else to do as well. As I mentioned to you the other the other day, uh, I helped out some kids in Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay is a city in North Ontario in Canada that has a, a native population, and somebody started a little social center for, the, for some of the native kids, and they didn't have any instruments there. And they invited me to come up there and play some music, and I couldn't make it. And I said, well, let me send some instruments. So I hooked up with a music store in Thunder Bay, and we bought um, a whole bunch of amps and guitars and keyboards with little onboard beats. And it turned out to be a great success. The kids are making little rap songs and all kinds of things, creative things coming out of that room now. So <clears throat> then I got to thinking about all my friends that are professional musicians that have nice instruments, good working instruments that they don't play anymore because maybe they've got the later model and so on. So it's it's a good thing to, as music programs disappear in schools, uh, if you know of a, a little pocket of kids somewhere that could use some instruments, then you'd call your friends and send the instruments on down and say, have a good time. It was pretty simple. It didn't cost that much money. It must have uh, felt so good, too. Yeah, I felt good because I'm told that it was a success. So... <laughs> Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's just a small thing really, but, uh, that's something that I, I decided to do some time back. Could we now, uh, Wayne, Rain, can we do the, um, save the planet part of the podcast right now? To, okay. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be right back. Excuse okay. me. Just yeah. for anyone who thought that the plastic straw was the demon of our times in the plastic department. What about a sticker, plastic sticker on my organic tomato? So, where do these stickers go? Nobody knows. They don't get recycled. I think they just end up in the ground somewhere, and they're not biodegradable. So, uh, it takes us to senseless packaging. Um, I've been noticing that packaging has... By the time I unpack my groceries, I've, I've got a whole table top full of stuff. I don't know what to do with it. And so, we've started bulk. This is bulk. Pepper. Wayne likes pepper, and I like lentils. Um, and we get these from the, uh, the local Indian store, kind of a gro nice grocery store here um, outside Silver Lake. And I reuse these big heavy-duty bags. So what happens here is we don't throw anything away. Um, even if you like to grind your own pepper, they, they make the peppercorns available in big bags like this, and then you just grind them at, at the house which does away with the, the Bic-style pepper grinder that you can get at Whole Foods. When that's finished, it goes in the trash. So this avoids uh, unnecessary trash. So this is about not making too much of a mess and paying attention to um, throwaways and disposables. I think if we put a little bit of time into it, including you smokers out there, I've seen you, cigarette butt down in the sewer or down in the gutter and down in the lawn, as a non-smoker, I've been noticing that for a long time. I'm glad you're feeding your habits, but that doesn't mean to say you can have those cigarette, cigarette butts float down to the ocean. So just a little bit of conscientious thinking in fast times, you know, in disposable times, we can make a difference just by doing simple things like that in our daily lives. Um, 
I thought I had a couple of other things there. Let me see. I, mean, I did like Iggy Pop. I started getting some a little recipe card thing going here. Oh yeah, I wanted to talk to you about inner peace. <laughs> um, the um, meditation and yoga and all has really come into popularity, and that's fantastic. But what's happening while you're at the yoga parlor? What's happening at your house? Is there somebody working on your garden with a leaf blower? Now let's move into outer peace. I've discontinued motorized gardening on my property, and as you saw, I have big, beautiful gardens here. So we use rakes and brooms, and we're not blowing the the wildlife to smithereens or scaring them, or um, and we're not adding up to the uh, sound pollution that we have a lot of these days. So... Um, this is a nice, easy thing to do. You might have to pay your gardeners a little bit more to stick around longer, but the animals will be happier for it, and uh, I think people will have a better demeanor because they're not going to be bothered by sound pollution so much. So just you know, a little hint, a little, a little tip that I would like to relate. <laughs> um, um, outer peace yes personal responsibility i mean i think by speaking about bulk isn't that where it starts you know oh and i'll I'll, then i'll get off of this packaging uh, angle here a little film it's called dance on and it's got a a lot of has a lot of fun in it so and it's a pretty great song um called dance on Thank you. 
Thank you. I can't thank you enough. What what an amazing time I just had, and I, I hope it wasn't too painful for you. Oh, I enjoyed it, Rain. Thank you. And and I'm not always comfortable doing this type of stuff, but uh, given that um, we're in our natural domain here. And oh, by the way, uh, when the pandemic came to visit us, I, I looked up quarantine in the dictionary, and there's a picture of me and Wayne in there at the console. So we haven't had, we haven't had to change too much. <laughs> Are you serious? Now I gotta go look at that. That's great. Oh, my. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, yeah, exactly. And could and could I add a footnote to all this? I got a little uh, sweet memo from Brian Eno, who is also in his house and he has a garden. Uh, he's spending most of his time in the garden now. He says it's so nice for to be getting through life without adrenaline, not to be driven by adrenaline. <laughs> So I think he's enjoying a little bit of peace and tranquility. Inner peace, now let's take care of outer peace. And hopefully that little virus is not going to come and get us. Amen. We're going to get it. <laughs> Amen. And that, what a beautiful way to close the show. Thank you so much. All right, Ray. Take it easy. Have a wonderful day. Peace. Bye. So all of his fullness. 
Launchleft aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launchleft begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. <laughs> 